I don't have a multimedia presentation, but I do have some pictures from overseas to show. How about that? I just had the privilege, along with several from our church, uh, to go over to Budapest, Hungary, and serve during a week of the English camp. Our church has been doing ministry like that for a number of years. Uh, we've been very much invested with the Reach Global Budapest City team, and it was a, a incredible about 10 days that we were there. I think you may recognize some of those people there in the picture. Uh, Budapest is a very beautiful city. Uh, the next picture you see is something from their Heroes Square. Uh, I mean, Budapest, Hungary, uh, I think their beginnings are like eight or 800 at least years before we ever became, you know, our, our independence as a nation. So they have a long, uh, rich history. Uh, some of our people loved ice cream, as you see there, Mike and Jill, just enjoying some of that. So we had a little time for some fun and everything. Uh, but each day during the Monday to Friday of the week, uh, there was about 50 to 60 high school students uh, that came, that we had the opportunity uh, to love on them. Uh, there was presentations, there was small group time, we had activities and games and all kinds of things. Uh, it was really a neat experience. One, uh, one of the highlights, one of the evenings, we had uh, dinner with the uh, Budapest City team. And uh, after dinner, we came back to the Montaz Cafe and enjoyed some time of fellowship. And then each of the missionaries got to share a little bit of what they've been doing, where God has called them to serve, and maybe what is coming up uh, in the near future. And then we finished. Uh, Mike Smalley then prayed for them as we concluded our time that evening. Here's some other. We did a little sightseeing. So we see some of us there. It's a very beautiful city. Again, a lot of uh, uh, long history. Uh, there's the new, the old, and things in between there. Uh, the next picture is one of our getting together with the students. Uh, there were presentations and things each day. We kind of focused on the theme of heroes, uh, all kinds of different heroes, from ordinary to super to uh, whatever else, but uh, also pointed to the ultimate hero, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Another picture, this is the parliament building there uh, along the Danube. Uh, the next picture is the school where we met. It's a Christian school, and so this is where we held the, the camp on Monday to Friday there. And one of the activities that most of the students never played before was pickleball. And, uh, and so uh, uh, we had a guy, his name is Aaron, from Kansas City, and uh, he's got a pickleball ministry. Yes, it is a real thing, and he was a great guy. I got to room with him, and uh, many of the kids got to learn a little bit uh, about pickleball. And the last shot is just uh, some more of the leaders. Uh, these are also besides from our church, some of the others that came from different parts of our country. And, of course, we also had uh, the blessing of getting to know, uh, I think, maybe another half dozen or more uh, Hungarian uh, leaders with that. So it was a great, uh, great week. So I want to say thank you on behalf of all our team for encouraging us, praying for us, for financial support so we could go. Uh, and one last highlight of the week on Friday, they were showing a movie and after about 20 or so of the kids uh, stayed after to talk to leaders uh, about spiritual issues. And so the leadership there is going to keep us informed, but continue to pray for these young men and women that God started working in their lives further during that week, and he'll continue to bring forth some, uh, some great fruit uh, in their lives in the days ahead. I'll tell you a little story about a lady named Helen Rosevere. I hope you have your uh, sermon outline. Uh, we've got a number of places you can write some good stuff down on there as we kind of keep track. But the story of Helen Rosevere. Helen was born in 1925 in England. 
Once in Sunday school, a teacher told them about the country of India, and Helen resolved to herself that she would one day be a missionary. Despite the Christian heritage of her family, Helen sensed a void in her life, a distance from God. She was enrolled at Cambridge University to study medicine, and there she joined the Intercollegiate Christian Union. In the winter of 1945, the Lord seemed to meet her in a personal way during a student retreat. She gave her testimony in the final evening, and the Bible teacher wrote Philippians 3.10 in her new Bible. He said, tonight you have entered the first part of that verse, that I may know him. That's only the beginning. And there's a long journey ahead. My prayer for you is that you will go on through the verse to know the power of his resurrection. And also God willing one day to know the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Helen felt an increased sense of calling toward missions and publicly declared during a missionary gathering in North England, I'll go anywhere God wants me to, whatever the cost. After graduating from Cambridge with her doctorate in medicine and completing other training, Helen arrived in the northeastern region of the Congo, later named Zaire, in mid-March of 1953 at the age of 28. In the first two years, she founded a training school for nurses, training women to serve as nurse evangelists, who in turn would run clinics and dispensaries in different regions of the country. Then she moved to a nearby area and transformed an abandoned maternity and leprosy center into a hospital with 100 beds, serving mothers, lepers, and children, along with a training school for paramedics and dozens of rural clinics. Exhausted, after five years, Helen returned to England in 1958 for a furlough. During that time, she received further medical training. After returning to Africa, the Congo became independent from Belgium, and civil war broke out in 1964. All of the medical facilities that they had established were destroyed. Helen was among 10 Protestant missionaries arrested and imprisoned by rebel forces. She describes the horror of what happened after she tried to escape. They found me, dragged me to my feet, struck me over head and shoulders, flung me to the ground, kicked me, dragged me to my feet only again to strike me again. The sickening pain of a broken tooth, a mouth full of sticky blood. I was numb with horror and unknown fear. I was yelled at, insulted, cursed, and later brutally raped. She would recount on that dreadful night, beaten and bruised, terrified and tormented, unutterably alone, I felt at last that God had failed me. Surely he could have stepped in earlier. Surely things did not need to have gone that far. I had reached what seemed to be the ultimate depth of despairing nothingness. What an emotional story. Have you and I ever felt something like that, what Helen was feeling? Have you ever felt that maybe God has failed you? That he's silent or he's far away? Maybe not interested right now in what is going on in your life? We would be like her, right? Saying, surely, God, you could, have, you could have stepped in. 
things do not have to go that far, do they? It's like, God, why did this happen to me? I try to faithfully serve you. I go to EFCCL, right? And our list of things, of reasons, why we should not have to experience some of this intense pain and suffering, the list goes on. I want to suggest that there, we may have a tendency for us as Christians in America to think that we are privileged when it comes to have a harder, uh, excuse me, to a life of suffering. We might think it's the unsaved. They will have a harder road with health scares, work pressures, financial strains, difficult relationships, and the grind of life. Not me. It's the believers living behind iron curtains or religious militant curtains that could lose their possessions, their liberties, and possibly their lives for the sake of the gospel. But not me. And when our faulty expectations about suffering are upended as they were with Helen, we are thrown into a spiritual tizzy. We're utterly confused and greatly distressed. This morning, as we look at Psalm 44, we're going to see how the pain of suffering nearly overwhelms the faith of the Lord's people. Please, if you will, turn in your Bibles there to Psalm 44. As one writer put it, we will, quote, see how it threatens their trust in a God they have known and experienced and have been close to for years, unquote. My desire is that we will come to identify with these people here in the psalm. We need to identify with these people here in the psalm. Why? Not because it's a pleasant thing to talk about, but because suffering is a very real thing for those of us who, who are born again, who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. The path of suffering is one God has chosen as part of his good and perfect will for our lives. This is a hard psalm. Yet it's also a psalm that holds out hope, love, and encouragement in the midst of suffering. Our main point, you'll see it up on the screen and also on your outline, and I've adapted some wording here from Pastor John Hindley, is this. By reminding us of his love and approval in the midst of great hardship, God wants to turn our suffering from being a mark of his distance from us to an experience of his closeness with his children. Let me pause there for a second. God understands that our natural way of responding to the suffering is like, okay, God, where are you? How come you haven't stepped in yet? I've been praying. I've been doing this. Others have been praying. God, it shouldn't have gone this far. And yet it has. But God wants to turn that thinking we have about suffering and turn it in a way that says, even though it may not make sense from a human standpoint, the suffering we're going through is actually an opportunity for closeness with God. God is saying, I want you to know I am right there with you in the midst of what you are going through. And it can be in a growing experience as God keeps doing that for us that allow us to consider it a privilege of serving our Savior in the midst of pain and despair. Let's pause just for a moment for prayer, shall we? Father, thank you for this time to be together. Lord, as we've been singing, you are an awesome God. 
you are worthy of our praise. How we thank you for making yourself known. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your word, which is all powerful, which will accomplish all that you want it to do. Father, may you help us to be humble, to listen to your word, and help through your spirit make it more a part of our lives. Even as Steve prayed before, Lord, that we would not, we would not leave here until somehow we are impacted and changed by what we hear from you today. We thank you for this now. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All right, a little bit briefly about the setting of the psalm. The book of Psalms, as many of you might know, is the songbook of Israel, 150 chapters written by a number of different human authors. Many of them are by David. We see some do not have a a name listed in that. As you look at Psalm 44, some psalms have these titles, and this one says, For the director of music of the sons of Korah, a mascal. Sons of Korah, that name may be familiar if you know a little bit of your Old Testament history. Go back in the earlier days when Moses was leading the nation of Israel after they left Egypt and and during some of their wanderings, there was a point where Korah and others stood up to Moses. They didn't agree with his leadership. They were opposed to him. They wanted to do something else. And God made it very clear that they were wrong. And God wiped out Korah and many of his followers. That you can find in Numbers chapter 16. And yet later in the book, we see, though, that not all of Korah's family was wiped out. Korah was from the tribe of Levi. And the Levites, a small group of them, were of the priestly line. And the rest of the Levites were all helping to tend to worship. And so the sons of Korah, the descendants of Korah, who are now writing this psalm, they became the gatekeepers and the singers and authored several of the psalms that we have in our Bibles. We think that maybe this psalm, although it doesn't tell us directly there, some things in the text point to a time when at least some of the Israelites are probably in captivity. Whether it's just a northern kingdom that was taken by the Assyrians or even the southern kingdom as well by the Babylonians, uh, I think you'll see here that uh, there's that indication. And that as a, to a type of psalm, this is a psalm of lament. Psalms have a variety of genres. There's messianic psalms, praise psalms, historical ones, royal ones. But this is one of lament. And a lament is a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. I love what Mark Rogop wrote in his book, Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy. And I think Mark is still pastoring. Last I knew, still pastoring in the Indianapolis area. But he says this, and listen to this closely. It's a great line here. Biblical lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Biblical lament, okay, the idea of a passionate expression of our grief or sorrow. Biblical lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. That leads to trust. It's how we bring our sorrows to God, how we can rightly process pain. It's how we grieve. Biblical lament. All right, let's walk through the passage here this morning, and it kind of lays itself out nicely, kind of four areas as we'll go through. The first is the confidence of the psalmist. That's verses 1 to 8, what uh, Steve read for us uh, this service here. All right, he recalls, the psalmist is recalling the workings of God for his people, both past generations as well as those of the psalmist generation. If we could just pick it up back again, uh, starting at verse 1, Psalm 44. It says, we have heard it with our ears, O God. 
Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days and days of long ago. With your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. Down to uh, verse 5. Through you, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trample our foes. So the psalmist has this confidence. He has seen. He's heard about past generations, but he's also seen in his own day what God has been doing. God has been working on the behalf of his people. Uh, A number of times, especially in in the earlier parts of, of the Old Testament, God's people are told to remember to remember the things that God has done. And you know, one of the things we do monthly at our church, we celebrate communion. And part of that is a way to what? To remember. To remember what Jesus did on the cross. We don't want to forget that. Because of that, that's our whole reason for living, for having hope in Christ. You know, over the last few years as a church, we can recall a number of God's blessings. Several years back, we had a capital campaign to pay off uh, the mortgage on this part of the building. And God amazingly provided beyond what was needed. We've seen the playground go up and the pavilion grow up. There's been missionary, new missionaries have been sent out. There's been numerous conversions of faith, baptisms, so many other things. God has been at work. God has been blessing. God has been faithful. And I would think each of us hopefully can also say some of those very things. I've seen God, look what he did in my life for his glory and my good. There's two phrases in this first section I want us to just think about for a second. They're going to come up again uh, in the chapter. And often when we see things repeated in Scripture, it's a good sign that those are important things. The first is the word love, which we see there in verse 3. The very end, it says, And the light of your face, for you loved them. God, for you loved them. That's also going to come up in the very last verse of the passage. The other is the phrase, all day long. In verse 8, In God we make our boast all day long. And we will praise your name forever. This comes two more times in the chapter. So God has always helped his people. And this psalm wants to set their their original reader's pain, and ours as well, squarely in the context of God's faithfulness. So the confidence of the psalmist. Next we see the lament of the psalmist, verses 9 through 16. Now look at the change in tone. The first eight verses... Confidence, praise, look what God is doing. Things are going so well. Look at the difference here now, starting in verse 9. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries had plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from the sale. That God of verse 8, in whom they made their boast all day long, now it's quite different. Look at verse 15. We see that phrase again. I live in disgrace now all day long, and my face is covered with shame. And he talks about in this section of lament, God, you've scattered us now among the nations Hence, thinking that this is somehow at least the northern kingdom, if not both, have been sent out into captivity. 
God, you've done this. The God that at first they were praising all day long, now they're in disgrace all day long. You know, I would hope all of us who are believers can give examples like the confidence we saw in the first section uh, of this psalm. We can talk about what God has done, his working on our behalf. But I also know very well that all of us, if we had the time to talk personally and listen individually, could also share some of the hardships, some of the, uh, what we might have felt like was disgrace, what was just so unsure of why in the world would this happen, painful stories of lament. And I know that there are some here even today going through that right now. You're just sitting here, you're maybe a lot of pain somehow, physical, might be emotional, might be spiritual, that's what you're facing at this moment. You know, in our church, just thinking, I was thinking of this over the last several months, there's been at least a half dozen funerals or more. Families that have lost loved ones. Some of the ones that have been our fellow church members. That loss. There's been numerous hospital admissions, several surgeries. People have faced strokes, cancer, and the list would go on. And that's just some of the kinds of hardships that people have faced. Remember how we defined biblical lament? It is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Ready? Biblical lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Okay? Let's keep remembering that as we go through. Stay with us. As we continue through this, it's even going to get a little bit more painful. But hope will come. Hope will come. Just as an aside, a little bit, a look at hope. In verse 9, which I think we, we read there, the psalmist said, but now, God, you have rejected and humbled us. Uh, probably some years later, after this was written, God would write through the prophet Zechariah, one of the minor prophets, which we'll hear about soon. God says this in chapter 10, verse 6, I will strengthen Judah and save the tribes of Joseph. I will restore them because I have compassion on them. And they will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. So we've seen the confidence of the psalmist. We've seen the lament of the psalmist. And now the protest of the psalmist. Picking up at verse 17. All this, okay, what, they just, what he, was just, he or she were just talking about. God had rejected them. He'd humbled them. They made them retreat. Their adversaries had plundered them. The list goes on of all the lamenting, the complaining. All this came upon us, though he had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. And it's like they were saying, it's bad enough, God, that you turned your back on us. But there's nothing we have done to deserve this. Isn't that what he's saying? He or she is saying, the psalmist? We don't understand. What, what's, what's the reason? Certainly we know biblically there's times that as we sin or do things wrong, there's, there's always going to be consequences of, of those choices. But they're saying, we, we don't get it, God. What have we done? Are they claiming perfection? Probably not. Let's go down to verse 20, where the text says, if we had forgotten the name of our God... Or spread out our hands to a foreign god, to an idol, worship the idol, would not God have discovered it? Since he knows the secrets of the heart, 
We'll just stop there for a second. They hadn't given up on God, these people. Okay? They still have some correct theology. They're saying, you know, listen, if we did some of those things, we forgot God or we worshiped idols, God would have discovered it. They, they knew that God was, was everywhere. He was omniscient, omnipresent, uh, so many other things, qualities about God. God would have, would have seen that. He knows the secrets of the heart. Gerald Wilson, in his commentary on the psalm, says, their protest is no claim of sin, sinlessness, but a claim to have fulfilled their essential obligations for the covenant. Think about what God himself said about that man, Job, which we see in the Old Testament. The text says, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, was God saying Job had reached perfection? Job was no longer sinning at all? No. But what God was saying was the trajectory of Job's life, his passion, his desire, his working, his energy was put to pleasing God. His desire was to do what was right. He didn't want to sin, even though there were times he did. And the, the people here with the psalmist are saying something similar. God, you know, we've been doing our best. We've been trying to keep the covenant. We've been trying to honor your name. We don't get now why these things are happening. It doesn't make sense to us. And we know ourselves who are believers in Christ, who've been born again, that we still sin. You're nowhere near perfection yet. Nowhere near perfection yet. And yet we also know what our desire is of life. If our desire, and hopefully God has continued to work that in you and me as his children, is to love and to please him, to be obedient, to honor him with our lives, hopefully that is our passion, however imperfectly we are doing it. And the people with the psalmist are saying, God, we've, we've tried our best to keep your covenant. We don't get it. Why is all this happening? There's that phrase then all day long. Look at verse number 22. Yet for your sake, who's, who's the your? Who's the psalmist talking to? Yet for God. God, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. The psalmist is saying it was for God's sake that they were facing death. It was like they were that sheep being taken out to be slaughtered and done away with. Here's where our false expectations about suffering as a Christian come crashing down. It says there very clearly in the text, it's for God's sake this suffering was happening to them. It was for God's purpose, God's objective, God's goal, God's interest that these things were happening to them. It didn't make sense from a human standpoint, but in God's divine economy, this was part of it. And we, and we, we, we cannot forget that you and I, we live in a world that has been marred by sin. It is not the perfect world that God made in those first six days of creation, where he said it was very good. It's all been marred. We're under a curse. And so things do not work out right. Things don't always go according to plan. And some very, very hard and difficult things do happen. And it might seem sometimes where is God? Couldn't have he stepped in sooner? It didn't have to go that far, did it? But that text, as we'll see one other one, tells us pretty clearly, it's for God's sake. 
for his purpose, for his objective that his people go through times of suffering. To go back to author John Hinley, he said, God sent, has sent our suffering for his sake. We do not suffer primarily because we may have sinned, although that can be true. Hinley says, we suffer because we are his. Suffering is a mark of his love for us. It shows us that we are his. And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, as Pastor Jay has been in the book of 1 Peter, we see a number of times where Peter says, don't be surprised by the suffering you're going through as it's some kind of strange thing, but consider and honor that you belong to Christ. Again, it goes against our human thinking, but in God's mind, the suffering we face for Christ is for his sake, for his purpose, for his uh, goal and objective. So how can we say there with, with Hinley that suffering can be a sign of God's love? How can we do that? Hold your place there and turn to Isaiah 53 for a moment, if you will. To Isaiah 53. We believe as a church, we have actually have a statement of faith. If you've never seen it before, you should go on our church website to see some of the things we believe, what the Bible teaches. But one of the things is about God, that God has revealed himself as a trinity, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three equal, three, three persons, and yet one God. Now that in itself is hard to uh, understand, and we'll let Pastor Jay sometime preach about that, right, and explain it all to us uh, very clearly. But, the, but the, the, the Trinity, God, the Father, Son, and Spirit from eternity past have been there, uncreated, always existing, perfect love, perfect holiness, all-powerful, all-knowing, all those things that we know about God. And as Pastor Jay also likes to say, God, the, as a trinity, they've been in, in a, a community group themselves for all eternity, right? They've had that love for each other, that relationship with each other, as we try to put it in human terms. So let me ask you a question. Did God the Father from eternity past, did he love God the Son? Did God the Father, at the time of creation, that were the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, did he love God the Son? At the time of the incarnation, when Jesus took on human flesh, became a baby so he could become into this world to be the Savior, did God the Father love the Son then? What about when Jesus went to the cross? What about when all of a sudden it got dark? What about when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did God the Father love the Son at that point? Look at Isaiah 53. Verse 4. Surely he, talking about Christ, again, this is messianic, talking about prophetic scripture, about the, the Lord's servant who would come, his suffering. He, would, he took our, our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. And he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is dumb, so he did not open his mouth. Then go down to verse number 10. Yet, it was the Lord's will, it was the Lord's will to crush him. 
and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the, the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. God the Father, it was his will to crush God the Son. Not because he didn't love him, because he knew that through the Son and what the Son would do, there would be a greater good. God would get glory as, as people would respond to the gospel message in saving faith and be born again. That's why Jesus came into this world. There's a problem that you and I all have. You see some of those words there of transgressions and, and, and sins and, and other things. You know what that is ta that's talking about? All of us. The Bible makes it very clear we are born sinners. We're separated from God. We, we are not morally perfect like God. Not only born that way, but we commit sin. Okay? We probably committed some sins this morning still, even before we got here. And God knew that that sin separates us from him. Not just you think, okay, well, I'm separated from God. Well, it's a lot worse than that. It's not only separation from God, but we are spiritually dead. And if we die physically in this life, all we have to look forward to is forever judgment in hell and lake of fire. That sounds like, boy, that just doesn't sound right. doesn't sound fair. But that's how awful sin is to holy God, the Bible says. Okay? That's the hopeless situation we all find ourselves in. But what we just read is God sent his son. God was willing because he loves you and me so much. He says, I want my son to take their punishment. He is going to become that sacrifice. And if people will respond to the gospel message, they will, they will come to a point where, where this message just stops them in their tracks and says, you know what? That's me. I'm that sinner for whom Christ died for. I deserve punishment. I need to just stop thinking my life is fine the way it is, the direction I'm going. I need to turn to God. I need to understand what he's done for me and embrace by faith alone what Christ did. And the Bible says when you do that, you have eternal life. That's why Christ came. God punished his son, caused his son to suffer because he loved his son, but he also loved you and me. Have you considered Jesus. Do you know this Jesus? Today can be the day of salvation for you. So to go back then to what we talked about, our thought about God sending our suffering for his sake, it's a mark of his love. If we belong to Christ, these things are true for us. And I want to just share one more passage as we kind of wrap up uh, here. It's in, from Romans 8, and this is so encouraging. can give us great confidence. It says this, some of these verses starting at verse 16 and some later in the passage. The Spirit, God the Holy Spirit himself, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we indeed share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Do you see the two connected there? Our human thinking is suffering is a bad thing. Well, it is on, on one level, absolutely. 
Suffering is painful. Suffering can be of great loss. Suffering can be confusing. On, on one level, it is, okay? But in God's looking at everything, looking at us living in a sin-filled world, looking at a world under the curse, suffering leads for his people to glory. Suffering now that we have to go through leads to glory for all eternity. That's the encouraging thing. If indeed we share, uh, share in his sufferings, nor do we also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And here's the connection to Psalm 44. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For it is written, here's the phrase, for your sake, God... We face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. For your sake, God, for your purpose, for your objective, for your goal, we find ourselves suffering. We find ourselves as sheep being led to slaughter. We're facing death all day long. And Paul concludes saying, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The suffering is real, the pain is real, but because we belong to Christ, we, we, we are victorious over all of that. There is such great things in store. A passage like this, a truth like this, helps us change our faulty expectations about suffering as a child of God from thinking that we're privileged so as not to experience much to seeing that suffering for Christ, even intense and ongoing suffering, is indeed a privilege. It's the path he has for us. So we've seen the confidence of the psalmist, the lament, the protest, and lastly, very briefly, the petition. Back to Psalm 44. Let me just read the verses there. The psalmist says, Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Why would you cry out to someone that to you think doesn't care? Why would you cry out to someone who's not there, who's not a paying attention to you? These people were hurting, but they still had trust in God. They knew that God had unfailing love. And so in their pain, they're lamenting. They're vo putting a voice to their, their feelings and asking God to intercede on their behalf. Without hope in God's ability to deliver, there would be no reason for us to lament when pain invades our lives. The rest of the story, let's go back to Helen Rosevere. In the darkness Helen found herself in, she sensed the Lord saying to her, you asked me when you were first converted for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want it? These are not your sufferings. They're mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. She eventually received an overwhelming sense of privilege that Almighty God would stoop to ask of me, a mere nobody in a forest clearing in the jungles of Africa, something he needed. She later pointed to God's goodness despite the great evil. And through br brutal, heartbreaking experience of rape, God met with me, she said, with outstretched arms of love. It was an unbelievable experience. He was so utterly there. So totally understanding, his comfort was so complete, and suddenly I knew, I really knew that his love was un unalterably sufficient. He did love me. He did understand. 
She later returned to Africa in 1966, continuing to work, producing more hospitals and maternity wards and things helping so many other people. She still continued to experience some trials and difficulties. Eventually, she returned in 1973 to the UK for health reasons, where she then traveled and wrote books and served as a missionary advocate. And she went to be with her Lord, for whom she counted it a privilege to suffer, on December 7, 2016, at the age of 91. We said at the beginning of our point with that God was looking to turn our human way of looking at suffering, that maybe God wasn't there, he wasn't caring, and turn it to see that in God's view of it, it's, he's very close. He's right there with us in all of that. So what is our response? Three things here. First, rest in the sovereignty of God. The fact that God is, is king, in charge, uh, everything he desires will come about. Nothing will ever stop uh, his, his purposes. Uh, Mark Rogop continues. He says, lament is that honest cry then of our hurting hearts, wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Right? We have to be honest with ourselves. Going through suffering is, is difficult. It's painful. We wish it would stop. But we need to kind of hold that intention with the promises of God with thinking and remembering about God's past faithfulness and his promises for what he will do now and in the future. Hold on to the truths about the character of God in the midst of our pain and despair. Second, recall the promises of Scripture. Lament is rooted in what we believe. And sometimes only through suffering are certain things learned. It was true of Christ Hebrews 5 tells us that even though Jesus on this earth was fully God, fully man, in his humanity, he had to learn obedience, and he did it through suffering. If he was learning suffering, if God allowed him to suffer, we should not be surprised at the suffering that you and I are going through. Or as James 1 says, we, should, we can consider it pure joy when we face these trials because we know as, as our faith is tested, it produces perseverance. And when that perseverance has its opportunity to complete its work, we will find ourselves complete, mature, and not lacking in anything. And lastly then, remember that we are not alone. Remember that we are not alone. The Lord has designed the Christian life to be lived in community, to be done together. Day after day, week after week, there can be great joy and beauty in living the Christian life together the way God intended it. But especially at times of suffering and despair, the resource of having other believers even becomes more precious. If I could just give a personal word with that, uh, I've had, I counted a privilege for my adult life to serve in pastoral ministry. Uh, at a previous church, we were there for a number of years, and it got to a point um, uh, where things became just. I mean, Church life and ministry life is hard, no matter what, right? In the best of times. But there was definitely some things, it was getting really bad. So much to the point that it was getting very toxic for us as a family. It was really doing damage and didn't always see it right away, but we kind of came to that conclusion. And to a point where it's like, you know what? There is no more leadership we could provide. And so I resigned. Gave notice. And after that, we started attending another church nearby in Chicago, uh, where we were living. In fact, it's the church where our oldest daughter goes. And for the next seven months, we attended there. We did life with them. And their love, their concern, and their care 
in their prayers was God's healing balm for our family. It helped us start to ease the pain. It started to renew hope, to increase joy. And I didn't know if God would ever have me, allow me to come back into ministry, and I didn't know, you know, applying for a lot of different things. But then he graciously opened the door for Marge and I to come to this church back in December of 08. And what God did through this church has continued that as we have done life together, as you have encouraged, as you have prayed, as God, as we walk together through things, it has continued to heal. It has continued to give hope. It has continued to increase joy. And it is a very beautiful thing when we see the body of Christ acting the way God wants it to be. Lord, we thank you so much for that. Suffering is the mark of God's love, but it is a temporary one. Thankfully, one day, one day, all suffering for God's children will pass away. For now, we can pray for God to remove it, but as if we've seen God uses suffering in our lives, that, we should not be, that should not be our only petition. Lord, until you remove it, help me to see what you are doing through it. Help me to persevere. God is treating us like Jesus in letting us suffer, and he is making us like Jesus through what we are suffering. Amen. Thank you.